Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now engaged in examining 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. Six short verses to finish up the first chapter of 2 Peter. Our context was this. In the first 15 verses, Peter talked about becoming partakers of the divine nature. He said, we are partakers of the divine nature because we believe in Jesus and we've been born again by him. He talked about making our calling and election more sure by confirming it by growing fruits of sanctification. And so now that is our context. We start in verse 16 here. I'm going to call this section of scripture, Christ, glory, and the prophetic word. We start with verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly contrived myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, when Peter is mentioning here cleverly contrived myths, he's taking a shot at the heretics who are bothering his readers. He mentions them in 2 Peter 2, verse 3. They will exploit you in their greed with deceptive words. Their condemnation pronounced long ago is not idle, and their destruction does not sleep. So the early church was constantly bothered by demonic heretics. What kind of myths maybe was Peter talking about? Well, there's two options. It could have been Jewish myths or heathen myths, both of which were equally destructive. Here's some scriptures where Paul complains about Jewish myths, Titus 1.14, dot, 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 and may not pay attention to Jewish myths and the commands of men who reject the truth. As he said in 1 Timothy 1.4, dot, 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 or to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. These promote empty speculations rather than God's plan, which operates by faith. Well, I'm not familiar with all these Jewish traditions and oral law, the Talmud and so forth. John Gill is, and he says they're full of myths. I wouldn't doubt it. Adam Clark says it could be heathen myths concerning the appearance of gods on earth in human form, which, of course, is the demonic counterfeit of the true incarnation of Jesus who came to earth in human form. Here's what Clark says about that, quote, to gain the greater credit to these fables, the priests and statesmen instituted what they called the mysteries of the gods, in which the fabulous appearance of the gods was represented in mystic shows. But one particular show, none but the fully initiated were permitted to behold, hence they were entitled epoptai, beholders. This show was probably some resplendent image of the god imitating life, which, by its glory, dazzled the eyes of the beholders, while their ears were ravished by hymns sung in its praise. To this it was natural enough for St. Peter to allude when speaking about the transfiguration of Christ, which Peter's about to do here in just a verse or two. He's contrasting visibly seeing Jesus in his glory compared to these stupid myths that heathens and the Jews had come up with. When we made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, we didn't follow these myths. When did, well, who's the we talking about? Jameson Fawcett Brown says Peter was one of the group of apostles who brought the gospel to Pontus, Galatia, Bithynia, and so forth, those provinces in Asia, in Anatolia, present-day Turkey, which is probably to whom the letter of Second Peter was addressed. It was the address of the first letter of First Peter. We assume it's the same for the second letter. Now, Peter didn't personally go up there and preach to these people in the diaspora, in Anatolia, but other apostles did. So when he says we, he's including himself in those groups of apostles. We, the apostles, made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now the question about coming is always the question is, which coming is it? Is it the coming to destroy Jerusalem in AD 70? John Gill mentions that possibility. Or is it the second coming at the end of time? John Gill mentions that. Albert Barnes affirms that. And the Cambridge study 
the Cambridge Bible for schools and colleges affirms that also. I'm wondering why can't it be the transfiguration itself when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ when he came on the Mount of Transfiguration. And we told you about that, maybe orally, passed it around. I don't know, but it doesn't matter. The point is, is the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, whether it's coming to judge Jerusalem, awesome event, coming at the end of the world, even more awesome event, coming on the Mount of Transfiguration, an awesome event. It wasn't a myth. It was eyewitness testimonies. And instead, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw it. Nobody told us about that. That's a big contrast for those who made up all those myths. They didn't see any of those myths. They just made them up with their fervent imaginations. What was Peter an eyewitness of? He was an eyewitness of Jesus' majesty. Now, what does that mean? Here's one speculation that it meant Jesus' divine nature, that Peter was an eyewitness. He saw it by faith. That's not what eyewitness means. Eyewitness means you don't see it by faith. You see it with your eyeballs. That's not it. It could be that Jesus, that Peter was saying he was eyewitnesses of Jesus' majesty because he literally saw Jesus' miracles. Well, that's possible, but that's not what it is. Because the context, as we'll see in just a few verses, is Peter was an eyewitness of the glory of Jesus at the transfiguration. John Gill affirms that, and he studied Bible affirms that, and I think they're absolutely right. Peter saw Jesus shining in refulgent, resplendent glory, blinding glory. Second Peter 1.17, for, re- for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, a voice came to him from the majestic glory. This is my beloved son. I take delight in him. The majestic glory is that light that was surrounding Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. God gave him glory and honor by saying, this is my beloved son. I take delight in him. Not only was there visual stimuli, there was auditory stimuli. They heard a voice saying, this is my beloved son. I take delight in him. That was a confirmation. This was probably necessary on the Mount of Transfiguration because Jesus was just about to be crucified as a criminal, and that's pretty hard on his followers. They needed to have confirmation. They needed to have a boost, an emotional boost, to know that Jesus really was the Messiah, despite the fact he's caught, captured, killed, and hung up on a cross. We all need that when it looks like the gospel is taking a kick in the teeth and taking a defeat. It happens all the time. Every time you turn around, it looks like something bad's happening. We need to remember that Peter saw Jesus personally, and Jesus ain't worried about all this stuff that's going on down here. Now, this voice that came to him from the majestic glory, some people have speculated it's at Jesus' baptism, and the reason is is because at Jesus' baptism, the voice from heaven said exactly the same thing. This is my beloved son. I take delight in him. We read that in Matthew 3.17. This is at Jesus' baptism. And a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, or I take delight in him, same thing. But we know that it's the transfiguration because we see in verse 18, we heard this voice, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. We heard it come from heaven while we were with Jesus on the holy mountain. Jesus didn't get baptized on a holy mountain. He got baptized on a river, which is not at the top of a mountain. So it's at the transfiguration. Here's a verse from the account of the transfiguration, which we can see in Matthew 17, verse 5. While he was speaking, suddenly a a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son. I take delight in him. And now here's a little extra phrase that's added at the account of the Mount of Transfiguration. Listen to him. There he is. He's bright. He's shining. I love him, God says. Next thing he says is, listen to him. Obey him. 
Peter didn't mention, he didn't quote to listen to him, but Matthew did. Anyway, Peter is emphasizing the fact we saw him and we heard him. We're eyewitnesses. We're not myth makers. Second Peter 1, 18 and 19. And we heard this voice, the we is Peter, James, and John, who were there at the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. And we heard this voice when it came from heaven while we were with him. Which voice? The voice that said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice when it came from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. That's the Mount of Transfiguration, which unfortunately is lost today. Nobody knows exactly where the mountain is. Some people say Mount Tabor, but that's not, that's for tourists. I remember going on a tour in Israel and driving by, and, and we didn't go right up to Mount Tabor, but we could see it in a distance, and the tour guide said, this is where Jesus had the Mount, this is where Jesus was transfigured. I love how tour guides do this with such certainty, but no, we don't know where it is. Verse 19, so we have the prophetic word strongly confirmed. Now, this verse, it will take a lot of exposition here. But let's start with strongly confirmed and go to the King James translation and we'll see a translation that is confusing, very confusing. Second Peter 1, 19 in the King James says this, we, all, we have also a more sure word of prophecy. A more sure word of prophecy? And prophecy, of course, is the scripture. So the scripture is more sure than the voice that Peter heard on the Mount of Transfiguration. So we'll read this way. Holman Christian Study Bible, verse 18, and we heard this voice when it came from heaven. Verse 19, we have a more sure word of prophecy, which is more sure than that voice that came from heaven, King James. Well, that doesn't make any sense. As John Gill points out, how can the Old Testament scriptures be more sure than what Peter saw with his own eyes and heard with his own ears? Well, Gill's got this off-the-wall explanation of how he can explain to King James. I think the Holman Christian Study Bible is the easiest way to solve the problem. The Homer Christians Study Bible just says we have the prophetic word strongly confirmed, not more strongly confirmed than the voice of God from heaven, but just strongly confirmed in general. There's no comparison between the word, the prophetic word, the scriptures, and the voice from heaven. That's the easiest answer. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, who's using the King James, of course, they say, quote, he does not mean, Peter does not mean to say that the word of prophecy or scripture is surer than the voice of God heard at the transfiguration as the English version is the King James. For this is plainly not the fact. Yes, it's plainly not the fact. So all you King James lovers out there, you might want to make an exception here in verse 19. That's not a good translation. Now, so we have the prophetic word strongly confirmed. The prophetic word, of course, is the scripture. The question is, by whom is the prophetic word scripture confirmed? Option number one, the scripture is confirmed by the voice of, from God that was heard at the transfiguration. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Or option number two, the scripture, the prophetic word is confirmed by the apostles' testimony about the transfiguration. Now, the NIV study Bible mentions both options as viable, and I think that's probably true that both of them could work here. So let's take option number one, the scripture, the prophetic word is confirmed, is strongly confirmed by the voice from God at the at the transfiguration. Now, how is the scripture confirmed by the voice from God at the, configure, at the transfiguration? Or which prophecies, which scripture is confirmed? Well, it could be the prophecies of the Old Testament concerning Christ, you know, child of Emmanuel, suffering servant, and so forth. Those scriptures were confirmed by the voice of God at the transfiguration. John Gill denies that. He says it could be the prophecies of Jesus' second coming, not his first coming, but his second coming, whether in the Old Testament or New Testament. Well, that's option number one. I'm not inclined to believe that. 
Second option is the scriptures confirmed by the apostles' testimony about the transfiguration. Now, the apostles testified, of course, that Jesus was there and Moses and Elijah were there. So that would be a confirmation of the Old Testament scriptures in general because Moses represented the law and Elijah represented the prophets. And they were both up there on the Mount of Transfiguration. So that means the Old Testament was confirmed. And then Peter's written words that he's writing, he's, he wrote scripture. He was an apostle. His written words were backed up by what he saw at the Transfiguration. So I would say that the Scripture is confirmed by the Apostles' testimony about the Transfiguration. So let's read it again that way. So we have the prophetic word. This is 2 Peter 1, verse 19. So we have the prophetic word strongly confirmed, confirmed by what we saw on the mountain. We saw Moses. We saw Elijah. And the Old Testament talked about Moses and Elijah, and we saw that. And we saw Jesus. We saw the Old Covenant, we saw the New Covenant, and all the words of the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles, which give the prophetic words of the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles, those prophetic words were strongly confirmed when we heard that voice, and we're telling you about that voice that we saw, we were eyewitnesses of, we saw it. Peter concludes verse 19, 2 Peter 1, he says, you will do well to pay attention to it, to pay attention to what? To the prophetic word which we are strongly confirming by our eyewitness testimony of what i saw on the mount of configuration you will do well to pay attention to that prophetic word as a lamp shining in a dismal place now a dismal place could refer this is my thinking i didn't see this in a commentary couldn't find any reference to it but to me peter is saying one of two things one he's saying if you have a dismal place like a dismal land, a dark and shadowy land like the Moors in Devonshire and the Hounds of the Baskervilles, Sir Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes book, you see the movie, Basil Rathbone movie, that's a dismal place, all right. That's the nastiest looking place I ever saw. And then Jesus' word comes and to a dark and gloomy world, there's nothing but death and destruction. And all of a sudden there's a light shining, lighting up the place. That could be, or it could not be, this dismal place might not be a country or the world, might not refer to a geographical space, but it could refer to the heart of an individual who is not saved and whose heart is dismal. And then Jesus lightens up his soul as he illuminates him, as the believer becomes saved, and the day dawns, and the morning star rises in that individual's heart. I'm not sure what Peter meant one way or the other, but I do know this. Dismal place is a dismal place. Cambridge Commentary for Schools and Colleges says the Greek word that's used there for dismal place applies the squalor and gloom of a dungeon. <laughs> so that's what it's like before Jesus shows up. Squalor and gloom of a dungeon, whether it's the land that hasn't received Jesus' words or whether it's an individual's heart. But at any rate, you should pay attention to it like this lamp shining because Jesus is the light of the world. And you should pay attention to it up until the time, and continuing, of course, after that time, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Now, this is an astronomical metaphor, and we need to look at that a little bit before we try to explain it. The morning star, I looked this up on Wikipedia, I always thought it was Venus, but it turns out that the morning star, astronomically, might refer to other, other heavenly bodies besides Venus. If it applies to Venus, it would apply because Venus appears in the east before the sunrise. So you're looking at the east, the sky's starting to get bright a little bit as the sun heads toward the horizon, and all of a sudden, boom, you got this bright light up there. Or it could appear, the morning star could be a reference to Sirius, which appears in the sky before sunrise during the dog days. 
I'm not an astronomer. I'm just reading this from Wikipedia. I wish I could tell you more. There's a less common reference to Mercury because sometimes Mercury appears in the east before sunrise too. So let's just say it's Venus just to keep it easy. Whatever it is, the point is, is that it appears before the sun rises. It's dark. All of a sudden you got a bright light in the sky. And that bright light is, bright light is followed by even brighter light. The sunshine is, the sunshine covers the dismal place, either your heart or the, the benighted pagan land that you're living in is that bright light comes up and covers the, covers the, the darkness. The darkness is gone. So let's flesh out the symbolism there. It's dark. A bright light appears in the darkness, followed by the sunrise. Likewise, in a dark and dismal place, it's dark spiritually. Jesus arises. Oh, and then the dark place of your heart or of your land where you're living is flooded with the light of God because Jesus brings light behind him so the light is kind of a harbinger if you will of greater light to come and that's what jesus is so pay attention to the word the prophetic word which tells us about jesus which points to jesus and then your soul will be flooded by light as the sun rises the sun rises in your heart i think dismal place is probably talking about the individual heart because the context here is when the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts it's not, it's not a slam dunk, but I think I tend to think that. So the point is, Jesus rises in your hearts. There's the light. Let him keep shining. And then the sun's going to rise. And boy, it's really going to get bright. And of course, the ultimate brightness is when we die and see Jesus face to face. I've just assumed that Jesus was the morning star. Let's see, how do we prove that? We can look at two verses in Revelation. Revelation 2.28. Just as I, that's referring to Jesus, just as I, Jesus, have received this from my Father, I, Jesus, will also give him, referring to the one who conquers, I will give him the morning star. So Jesus is basically said here in Revelation 2.28 to give himself to the overcomer. Now that's a little bit of a strange reference. It's not quite so obvious, but let's look at Revelation 22.16. I, Jesus referring to Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. So there, Jesus explicitly refers himself to the morning star. So when, or, and the King James calls it the day star because it arrives just before the day, before the sunrise. So the day star or the morning star is Jesus who rises in our hearts and the metaphor becomes clear. Let's go now to 2 Peter 1, verse 20. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. This is the King James Version. Now I've switched to the King James. There's a reason for that, because that word private interpretation has become sort of a theological term of art, and it's controversial. There's two different ways of looking at it. Private interpretation could be option number one. No prophecy is to be privately or independently interpreted by the reader. No prophecy should be privately interpreted by the reader. NIV Study Bible gives that as an option. Option number two, no prophecy is privately produced by the prophet. NIV Study Bible, Clark and Jameson Fawcett and Brown suggest that. Now, which option is, is the one that Peter meant? Well, I'm going to suggest as option number two that no scripture, no prophecy is privately produced by the prophet. That's the majority view, and I hold to that view. But let's just say the minority view here that no prophecy is to be privately or independently interpreted by the reader. Let's assume that's true for the sake of argument. Well, that's true, too. Whether Peter meant and Peter might not have meant it, but if he did mean it, it was true because we do not privately interpret the scripture. 
Now you say, well, wait a minute, I'm a Protestant. I don't rely on the Catholic Church to interpret scriptures. I do it myself. Well, well, let's look at that. Let's look and see if there might be an overreaction here. First of all, let's look at Second Peter 3.16. There's also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, talking about Paul, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. And so Peter says that some of Paul's scriptures are hard to understand. Well, when you get an individual looking at a scripture that's hard and he does it himself and he doesn't look to any other teachers, look to any other brothers in Christ, doesn't get any help from anybody, his private interpretation, I know this from experience, will probably be a bunch of baloney. That's not private interpretation does not mean that you interpret the scripture by yourself. There are other methods of interpretation which should be used in addition to your individual preferences. The Holy Spirit is number one, other scriptures, and other people in the church. Now, when I say other people in the church, I don't mean the Catholic Church. Of course, the Catholic Church loves to quote this, saying no scriptures, any private interpretation, the individual believer can't believe the scripture, the teaching magisterium of the church has to tell us what it really means, and that's bunkum. So we see two different extremes. One is me and Jesus got a good thing going. Me and Jesus don't need anybody to tell us what it's all about, as Tom T. Hall once famously said. That's one extreme. The other extreme is, I don't know what it means. I'm just going to let the Pope tell me. That's the other extreme. Well, those two extremes can be expressed in two Latin words, sola scriptura and solo scriptura. Sola scriptura, of course, was the battle cry, the clarion call of the Reformation. We look to the scriptures alone, not to the traditions of the Catholic Church. Here, here, I affirm that with 110% of my being. But the other extreme, so that avoids the Catholic extreme, that we want to let the Pope tell us what to do. And the other extreme is solo scriptura, where we interpret the scripture by ourselves, with no help from other members of the church. I call that theological narcissism. Any doctrinal truth I've ever gotten out of the scripture, I never got it on my own. I looked, helped, got other people to help me. This whole series of podcasts that I'm doing I don't agree with a lot of the sources I use, but I use the sources. I use a lot of different sources with different opinions, different aspects, different angles. In fact, some people don't even address the issues I'm concerned with, so i got to go look for some more opinions. Again, they're not the Scriptures, they're opinions, but they're opinions of people who look at the Scripture and try to interpret it, and so then I try to see what the Scripture means. All the while praying for the Holy Spirit, but I realize the Holy Spirit uses means. He doesn't do things directly, I'm, you know, these people go around and say, the Holy Spirit told me. I said, yeah, right. The Holy Spirit, I saw one the other day. Holy Spirit told me about the Antichrist. Well, I'm convinced from Scripture the Antichrist was Nero. Well, he was talking about the Antichrist just getting ready to show up after this next election when there's going to be chaos in the streets and riots all over America. And then the Antichrist is going to come. Well, I don't believe him. He says, God told him. I hear that so much. I say, yeah, God told you who to marry. I've heard that before, too. So that's what I call sola scriptura. Believe it just because I, I believe it, and I don't care what the rest of the church says. All right, so, I, as again, I don't think that Peter meant that when he says no scriptures, any private interpretation by the reader as he tries to interpret the prophecies, interpret the scripture. I don't think that's what Peter's talking about here. But if he was, he was talking about let's do away with solo scriptura. He was not talking away, let's do away with sol, sola scriptura. But this is what I think he was talking about. That no prophecy is privately produced by the prophet. The NIV study Bible Clark and Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown suggest that the context helps confirm that view. P. 
Peter is contrasting his prophetic inspiration to the heretic's quote-unquote knowledge. 2 Peter 1.16, a few verses earlier, says this, For we did not follow cleverly contrived myths, and the implication is, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, so we didn't produce this scripture on our own like these myth-making heretics did. But even better is just look at the next two verses here, the next verse. Our verse says in verse 20, this is Holman Christian Study Bible, After all, you know this, no prophecy of Scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation, which kind of prejudices. The translation does prejudice your view of this, so let me go back to the King James. Verse 20, knowing this, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. That, of course, is ambiguous. Private interpretation by whom? The reader or the prophet? Well, I'm saying it's by the prophet. And I look, read to verse 21 and I see this, no private interpretation. Why? Verse 21, because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And there, verse 21 is clearly talking about the fact that the prophecy was not produced by a human being. It was rather produced by human beings plus the Holy Spirit. So it means that no prophecy was produced privately. I think that's clear enough. In fact, the NIV study Bible said this is the preferred view. Of course, it's the preferred view because it's the right view. It's obviously that's the view that it should be because of the context. We go to verse 20. Well, let's look at some other translations. And in these translations, you'll see some translations translated in such a way that it sounds like it's no private interpretation by the reader. And some translations say it's no private production of the prophecy by the prophet. And some translations leave it ambiguous, as does the King James. So here's the Holman Christian Study Bible. First of all, you should know this. No prophecy of Scripture comes from one's own interpretation. That's the reader's interpretation. So that would be the view that I don't believe. Second Peter, this is uh, the Mace New Testament. Mace New Testament, I think, was the 18th century translation of the New Testament. But you must, above all, consider that no prophecy of the Scripture did proceed from the prophet's own motion. Well, that would back up what the majority view is, that the prophets didn't produce the Scripture on their own. And the, and the translation clearly takes that view. Here's the Montgomery New Testament, Second Peter 1.20. But first be assured of this, that no prophecy of Scripture is of private interpretation. Well, that's ambiguous, just like the King James is. Private interpretation by who? The reader or the prophet? The translation doesn't point us in either direction. Here's the New American Bible, Second Peter 1.20. Know this, first of all, that there is no prophecy of Scripture that is a matter of personal interpretation. Well personal interpretation of the reader or personal interpretation of the prophet, the translation doesn't make it clear. So that's ambiguous. Here's the New American Standard Bible but for Second Peter 1.20. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. That makes it sound like it's the reader's interpretation. So you see the translation's ambivalent, but I really think the majority of you is right. It's talking about the prophets didn't do this on their own. And let's look at verse 21 and see why the prophets didn't do their prophecies on their own. On their own. Verse 21, 2 Peter 1, Because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Now that prophecy, of course, is talking about the Scripture. In fact, John Gill says the Jews call the Scripture, gives the Hebrew word, which means, quote, the prophecy. No prophecy ever came by the will of men. By the will of man, instead, men spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So what this verse means is no prophecy ever came merely by the will of man. The Greeks do not. They never use that word merely. And they, I've said this many times. I've run across it many times. I don't know why in English we would do that, but they, they don't do it. 
No prophecy ever came by the will of man alone or merely by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So it's not men alone, but it's men plus the Holy Spirit. As the NIV Study Bible puts it, the scriptures were a joint product of men and the Holy Spirit. God was the source of the content. The human prophet used his words, his style to produce the prophecy, and that is the standard conservative doctrine of the inspiration and inerrancy of the scripture. And with those words, we close Second Peter chapter 1. Now, in our next audio, we'll start into chapter 2 of Second Peter. We'll take up the first 11 verses. The whole of chapter 2 is about false prophets and teachers. So verses 1 through 11, we'll take that up and talk about false prophets and teachers, and we'll call that part 1. Part 2 will be verse 12 to the end of the chapter, which we'll take, in, take up in the second next audio. Hope you stay tuned for both of those, and I hope you enjoyed this one.